Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. I just got to the point where I could not look beyond the bad behavior. It makes you so tired. So I think when I got to that point, I realized it was well and truly time to do something else. Hello, and welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. I'm Claire Hatton. And I'm Greta Thomas. And we're on a mission to help you achieve your goals. We're all about sharing the secrets of the world's most innovative and pioneering successful women. Hear their uplifting stories and practical advice right here. Yes, right here. And if you're enjoying this podcast, then why not sign up for our newsletter at hello at don'tstopusnow.co and keep listening for this week's latest episode. Hello and welcome to this week's episode all about reinvention. You're not wrong there. Our guest this week is Maria McNamara, who completely reinvented her career after two and a half decades in the one field. Yes, decades. Yes, that's right. Now, after finally getting sick of what she described as misogyny and bad behaviour, Maria knew she had to call it quits and leave professional services for something completely different. Now, that's not to say professional services today has the same issues Maria experienced. And Maria is the complete diplomat on this topic. But to suffice to say, she needed a change and knew she wanted to do something completely different. She certainly did. And that resulted in working in politics and government in completely different roles, including digital transformation for a number of years. She then immersed herself in the startup world. Today, Maria's role is CEO of Advance, which is all about connecting global Australians with one another and Australia to create economic and cultural opportunities, collaborations, investments and innovations. Indeed, and as a consummate networker and connector, it seems like the ideal role for her. I think it is, absolutely. In this episode, you'll learn how being an immigrant set Maria up for successful reinvention, what it takes to reinvent your career, Maria's principles for successful innovation, and her advice on networking and connecting. So without further ado, enjoy this episode with the constantly learning and always connecting Maria McNamara. Maria McNamara, welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. We're really excited to learn more about your fascinating career. A way we start the podcast with all of our guests is to ask you, you know, if you met someone today for the first time, how would you describe what you do in a couple of sentences? There's a couple of ways, but the one that I think works best is to say that I connect people, ideas and opportunities. And at Advance, I do that in the national interest. And that's the national interest for Australia, right? Right. Okay, fascinating. Well, we look forward to digging into that very soon. But before we talk about your what you're doing today, love to rewind the clock and go right back and uh, tell us about your childhood. 
Wow. Okay. So I was born in Khartoum in Sudan and I was the youngest of uh, three children and a cousin who was living with us. So my uh, eldest is 13 years older than I am. My second is nine years older than I am. And I was the baby of the family and the only girl. My parents' heritage uh, is Syrian and their ancestors came into Sudan. They went inland into El Abayid, uh, where they were the only uh, white people in a black community. And then they eventually made it to the capital in Khartoum. And uh, we remained there for most of our lives until things got a bit tense. And dad decided that for our education, so that he didn't have to send us all over the world, that he would pack the family up and come to Australia. Wow. So how old were you when you left Khartoum? I was four. We arrived on the 2nd of December, 1970, along with the Pope. <laughs> okay, so you probably don't have many memories then of Khartoum growing up. It's interesting. when we, we had the typical immigrant experience. Our life in Sudan was very comfortable for my mother. And when we arrived here, she ended up in a two-bedroom apartment near the airport with the four of us because uh, my eldest brother was uh, studying to be a priest in Israel. When I was seven, my grandfather died. So she packed me up and took me back to Sudan so that we could settle the estate and had said to my father at the time, I haven't bought great furniture. You can sell it all. I'm not coming back and you can bring the boys and we'll go back to Sudan. So I think she'd been in Khartoum a week uh, and she rang him. She said, I was kidding. It's not true. (laughs) And I think that was the point at which she'd let go of the old and embrace the new And we were one of the first Sudanese or first families from Sudan to arrive in Australia. I think there were three other families at the time. And and my dad basically took on the role of community elder. And as new families arrived, we would welcome them. We would help them settle in. uh, We would help them find jobs uh, and we would help them find their way around. Uh, The 70s in Australia wasn't straightforward, but a really beautiful community spirit built around uh, my father. Oh, amazing. And what was the young Maria like? How would you describe yourself back then? Well, when you grow up as the only daughter in a family of adults, you learn very quickly that you have five people to tell you what to do and it becomes very tiresome. The one thing that is really interesting in my upbringing was that by the time I came along, there were no rules to break because they'd all been broken. And my father would encourage me to believe that I could do anything Not necessarily at the same time, but certainly to have no sense of being denied an opportunity that we would find a way. And when you think about the fact that, you know, he'd come out, they'd had a thriving business in Sudan and he had to start the whole process here. So he was a man who was a community elder in Sudan, had his own thriving import-export business, the whole bit, and he arrived and couldn't get a job. He was packing Coca-Cola boxes. He was a mechanic. Uh, and then finally landed a job as a postman at Qantas while he redid all his qualifications. It was a real sense of he put himself second and he put us all first. So the young Maria, it was never a threat. It was never um, an expectation, but it was just that the opportunities were there and he encouraged me to take them. So as we went through primary school, I was trying to figure out how, what it was to be Australian and same experiences as all immigrant children caught between two worlds, but really encouraged to embrace the Australian life. And then as we were growing up through high school, I ended up at a Catholic school in Randwick. And so getting used to a whole new community. And at university, I was at UTS. So always the outsider, but never phased by it. University was a really interesting experience. I was doing a Bachelor of Business majoring in accounting. Uh, like everybody else in my family, until I got to an overseas exchange where I went to Oregon State University. 
and realized I hated accounting. <laughs> so I started my marketing degree and that's where my career and my new world began. Just coming back to your dad, he sounds like he was really progressive. How wonderful that, that you had that influence and opportunity in your life. And Maria, you said you went to uni and you switched from accounting to marketing. And then you jumped into uh, really a, a career in professional services. How did that happen? I'm one of those that have been cursed by graduating at the wrong time. So I came out in the 87 crash. I had just started work. There were so few jobs and uh, my friends were getting jobs at, you know, consumer goods companies. And by the time, you know, I turned my attention to it, there were none left. And so I had to go looking for opportunities. And I ended up at Capital Financial Services, which was a time, well, at the time it was the old City Mutual that had changed into, you know, this progressive insurance company doing market research, which was not me, but it was a start. And then I was so desperate to get out of that role. Uh, there was a role coming up at KPMG and I think I was their second ever professional services marketer. And I arrived and we basically wrote the rule book. So I was one of the first marketers of professional services in a formal sense. I mean, the partners were always the marketers themselves, but you know, in a formal sense, uh, yeah. So we started there. And the thing about services is that it, they're so, so incredibly fascinating because you're dealing with people's talent and you're working out how to package up their ideas and make it relevant and accessible to the market. And you're trying to make the intangible tangible. So it was, it was phenomenally, I mean, it was just, I loved it. And so I'm going to be cheeky and compress. I think it's about 25 years where you worked in different capacities, you know, marketing and business development for in professional services firms. If you had to distill the biggest lesson that you learned from the tricky, as you say, marketing of intangibles and, and talent, uh, you know, what would you say that would be? Wow. I've never been asked that question. It's a good one. Let's put the users first and the customer first and the client first. The most important thing is to be as close to their business as they are, because only when you understand it from their perspective is your advice useful or relevant. And the only other thing to mention there is to know when it's not appropriate to give advice in a sense that it's not appropriate to offer them a service because they don't need it. Yeah, no, I totally get that. And I'm sure that you are speaking music to many people working in professional services ears today as well. Now, I touched on the fact that you had a couple of decades doing this. And I think why I sort of raced through almost impolitely your time in professional services is because what I think we find so fascinating is then the complete if you like, almost career reinvention that it seems that you then set about to do for yourself. Can you tell us, you know, what was the trigger to say enough is enough in professional services and you want something new? So there's a positive and a negative spin on this. Uh, the positive is that after 25 years, I'd done one too many tenders and I was completely over it because, you know, the whole bidding for work became exhausting and quite futile in many ways. So there was that element to it. The other element was that I just got to the point where I could not look beyond the bad behaviour. It makes you so tired. So I think when I got to that point, I realised it was well and truly time to do something else. That was then. Do you think, you know, you talked about bad behaviour and you mentioned misogyny. Do you think it's better now in professional services? Things are very different now because... People are alive to the consequences of their behaviour and there are many more women in senior leadership positions within professional firms than there were in the past. 
and there's much more of an acceptance of the need of for diversity there's much more of a um, a sense of the impact that behaviors have on the mental health of, of people so we've come a long way is it right all across the professional services um, uh, sector no does it have room to improve everybody has room to improve but it's certainly a lot better than it was yeah well that, that's really good to hear and you know when you decided it was a time for complete reinvention workwise what was going through your head in terms of where you wanted to go that's really interesting because i didn't have an idea what i decided to do was open myself up and try different things and find the thing that spoke to me having the freedom to do that was incredible because for the first time in a very long time i was able to step back and having no expectations placed on me i was able to just pick and if it didn't work i could pick again we had a situation at home where i was able to do that i had the support of my husband and my family and i'll always be grateful for that how fantastic i'm really intrigued on you know how you actually chose where to go you know what what to what to experiment with yeah that was easy one of the politician or the politician i ended up working with had come in to do a presentation at a firm it was a, a retreat and i was so taken with his honesty and i was so taken with his big thinking i thought to myself this is a world i don't know at all and if i was going to enter this world even for a, a brief moment to understand it he'd be the person that i'd want to work with and so on that basis i you know i knocked on the door and volunteered my time knowing that i knew nothing about their world and so i was able to do it for nothing and i said you know i've got these skills if they, if you can use them uh, you're welcome to them so you went into politics. How hard was it to become a beginner again and completely, you know, in a completely new field? See, this is the trick with having spent 25 years in professional services. You begin again every time, every project. You know nothing and you have to bone up on the issue and you have to master it and you have to be able to develop the skills that are required to communicate it. It was second nature. I think it comes with being accustomed to the new or not being concerned about failing because you know there's no judgment associated with it. So it wasn't hard at all. I was able to go up there and and I was just like a sponge. Whatever they needed done I would do. And when I saw ways to apply the experience that I'd gained over two and a half decades I offered it which benefited them and benefited me. So it was really lovely to see how so many of the skills were transferable. And then it was lovely to learn new things. Yeah, I can imagine. There's many people that we speak to who are in the midst of thinking that they want to completely reinvent their careers, and you've done it. What was your advice to those people? What would you be thinking, doing? How would you approach it? So you have to just accept that this is a period in which you're just going to focus on you. And once you come to that position, you free yourself of the baggage and you open yourself up to be a, a student again. And it's uh, incredibly rewarding. It's different to being in a, a formal education setting. You know, you have to be insanely curious and you force yourself to, um, to accept that some situations are uncomfortable and you might be wrong and, you, and it's okay. I think once you get to that position, the world opens up to you and you're no longer afraid. Once the fear goes, the opportunity begins. Yeah, that's fascinating. What's your tip for getting rid of the fear? Because I think a lot of people are fearful of, you know, 
change, even if they're, you know, deeply unhappy where they are today, or in some cases, obviously, people are in a tricky situation with their role disappearing thanks to COVID. But how do you make the fear disappear? It takes time. I go back to the fact that I came out in the recession or the, the crash of 87. And, you know, I come back to the fact that I started in a profession that was relatively new. And I also come back to being the kid of immigrants. All of those things have fear associated with them. And the thing that makes it all possible is the belief and the support of the people around you, the people who love you. You need to be able to draw on that. Do you think it's fair to say, if I was to paraphrase you, that what you're really saying is you have to have a strong enough sense of identity of yourself outside of a work label, along with the support network, to be able to then go forward and not be so fearful about things going wrong in a work scenario? Is that fair? Yeah. There's also a really practical element, and that is what have you got to lose? If you're miserable, if your job's gone, if you've run your course in a particular profession and you just don't find the motivation, what on earth have you got to lose? Yeah, no, for sure. Now, you went from politics, if I'm right, into sort of public service, and then you got involved in startups. How did that happen? So when I was in the politician's office, the first, one of the things I did was spend a lot of time getting my head around the new innovation ecosystem that was emerging in Australia at the time. And the one great thing in a politician's office is you get access to the most incredible information resources from all over the world and to the parliamentary library. So we, we developed his very first policy paper, if you want to call it, on innovation, this you know 50-page tune that was an amalgam of all the research I'd collected over the, over the while. And having come through that 87 crash and watching all those people lose their jobs, all I could see was that with innovation coming along, if we weren't prepared for it, there would be a lost generation. And what we needed to do was reskill enough people in the, stuck in the middle uh, so that they would have jobs in the new economy. So that's what started the whole conversation the opportunity of the new, because we need to find new sources of revenue for the country, the opportunity of becoming a producer nation rather than just a consumer nation, and the need to make sure that that transition didn't impact negatively on workers. Right. And then you got involved in numerous sort of different forums with startups. What was it in particular about sort of getting involved with little itty bitty companies with the germ of an idea that appealed to you? Entrepreneurialism is just the most exciting uh, space to be in. And when you realise that what you're doing is creating the companies that will employ the young people that are coming through, that will give Australia the sort of revenue base that it needs to um, maintain its standard of living, it gave me a tremendous sense of satisfaction. And the thing about working with emerging companies or brand new companies is that they have nothing. They have a problem that they're solving, they have time, they have volunteers and a little bit of money. And if you think that the problem is worth it, with your advice and your support and your ability to open doors for them, they can grow and thrive. And then suddenly, over a period of time, if they stick with it and they've aligned their solution with the problem well enough, you watch them grow and they find their feet and then suddenly they're exporting globally and they're employing, you know, 100 people. And your contribution at those, in those very, very early days enabled that. So I've done that now with six companies and I have the most enormous pride because these startup founders 
who had the idea and not much else, and now employers of of Australians. Yeah, that must be very rewarding. It's incredible. It's the most incredible feeling. And it's funny because I've taken no equity in any of them because I've always wanted to remain independent and be able to promote them without having a vested interest. And so hand on heart with all of these companies that I'm an advocate for, I do it because it's the right thing to do. And I do it because they benefit the nation. They benefit the nation's people. And so now you're CEO of Advance. Before I ask you about that, um, you know, about what it feels like to be CEO, can you just briefly tell us a little bit about Advance and what it is? Yes, of course. Advance is a platform that we've created over 20 years to connect global Australians with one another and with Australia. And we do that because we want to encourage more collaboration. We want to encourage more investment and more innovation. There's also another feature of of advance and that is that we want to celebrate the best that Australia has produced and each year 13 to 14 Australians who are leading in their field globally are recognized during the advance awards and that is phenomenally important for the young because it gives them role models it gives them an opportunity to see how it inspires them to be their very best and just what you can achieve Maria, Advance is your first CEO role, I believe. How did you feel about becoming a CEO? Was there any apprehension? Not really, because CEO is a state of mind. If you're a leader, you're a leader irrespective of whether you've got the title or not. And if you look at my career, I've always led, either from behind when things when times are good or from the front when times are bad. And so whilst I was grateful to be the person able to be making all the decisions and to set the strategy and with the board and to guide and to lead the business, uh, the fact that it had the title was more procedural because my state of mind was always that I, whatever I was doing, I was leading. Uh, so it drew on, on that philosophy. More importantly, it drew, the role was exciting because I was able to apply all the experience, all the networks all those co-centric circles for the benefit of others. This is more of a vocation than it is a job. And because I see it that way, it's a labour of love. This is something that I believe in. Finding people who are overseas and helping them connect with other Australians who are overseas in order to make that experience better. Finding people overseas and connecting them with Australians back home so that Australia is able to progress its, um, its work is important helping people transition back to Australia uh, so that it doesn't take them two years to find a job. That's also really important because why waste the talent? So yeah, it's a very, very special role. I love the way you say that it's it's like a vocation. What a wonderful thing to be able to wake up every morning and say, you know, the job that you do is something you're so passionate about. And I'd imagine that you get a really interesting global perspective, um, particularly on the differences between nationalities when it comes to startups and innovation. What have you observed that, you know, you could tell us about? You know, it it's really quite amazing. When you're immersed in the national parochial local debate, you forget that there's a world out there. And it took me just a little while to break free of the national conversation and into the global conversation. Once you enter the global conversation, everything changes. You're able to see the community as 7 billion, not 25 million. You're able to see opportunity 
coming through the collaboration of those all over the world, not just physically present here. And the digital platform allows that connectivity. And that's why what I do is so enriching because once you see the opportunity and you make the connection, you stand back and it takes off. Do you have any principles that you and your team or those that you connect with used to think really creatively about solving problems or innovating? Yeah, when we started the team, we sat down and we thought to ourselves, you know, what are those elements that we've picked up along the way through our various experiences that we want to reflect in our team? What's important to us? And a couple of us had worked together at the Digital Transformation Agency. So we borrowed heavily from that experience. And that, of course, borrowed heavily from work that was done in the government digital service in the UK. So what's important to us is that we always start with user needs. So every problem that we try to solve, we, we put the user front and centre. We try only making new mistakes. So uh, there's no problem making a mistake, but, but we try to avoid making the same one over and over. Uh, we have a philosophy that we're always learning, that this is the, you know, the whole voracious appetite for, for, and the curiosity, you know, constantly um, seeking out an understanding. We try, and this is really important to us, as in our team at least, we give gratitude, not grief. So we think through the end game and we make sure that um, we involve people and we don't cause people problems. Because we're in a small team and because we've come from startup culture and also, you know, the lean teams in uh, professional services before they had such a name, uh, we keep our overheads very lean. So wherever possible, we don't overburden the business. We also do the hard work to make things simple. And when you look at a lot of the work that we try to do, we move as much of the friction out of it as possible. So, so what is really, really important to our, our team and to me particularly is that you give first before you ask. I don't feel comfortable, nor do I want to ask something of you before I've shown you my commitment to you. We also believe in getting started. It doesn't have to be perfect. Just get going and then you can iterate. And finally and most importantly, don't tell somebody what you're talking about. Show the thing. So create the, the prototype. Yeah, no, I really like that. You know, one thing that really strikes me is you seem to be very well connected. You know, what's your advice, particularly for women, on building a network and connecting with people, which is such a, a vital tool in this era? Networking is really critical. And it's critical because interactions between me people make things possible. Trust between people makes things possible. And things move a lot faster when trust is built. My heritage always been about building community, whether it's my dad building the community of immigrants that came or whether it's um, me building communities within professional services. It's always been about who do you know and how can you connect people up to help people get things done. So if you had to give someone, you know, top two tips for overcoming the awkwardness they might feel at reaching out to someone to either stay in contact or to make contact for the first time, what would your tips be? Don't do it cold. Find a common purpose, find a common interest and work through that. Give first and, and you'll find that the relationship grows from there. Being generous is a good thing. I mean, many of the startup hubs are so welcoming and so open. You can volunteer as a mentor. You can volunteer as an intern, even as a, you know, a mature age or a very experienced person. You can turn up to the information nights and get involved. There are hackathons on the weekends where you can get involved and develop new skills. There's no end to the opportunities to build networks. 
I think that's there's some really great practical suggestions there. Yeah. Thank you for those. You're a mum, you're a CEO, you've we're sort of incredibly well connected. Do you have any daily routines or habits that help keep you productive and focused? You know, no. And I'm actually not the person to, to ask that question because I have terrible habits. Well, that's refreshing. <laughs> yeah, we love that. So I have, a, I have good intentions to exercise, but I don't exercise. What I do do is I walk around the house, water the plants, prune the trees while I'm thinking, but that's the extent of it. So maybe that's exercise. In terms of habits, the one thing that I do religiously is on a Sunday night, I'll map out the week. So I'm very clear about my intention for the week. And I've become a bit obsessive with um, making sure that the Monday board, which is how we manage our projects, is functioning. The other thing I do is um, my team and I do a daily stand-up. It's only for 15 minutes, but we all get together on the Zoom for, for, for those 15 minutes. We talk about what's been, what's coming, and what any blockers are. So those rituals are important. But in terms of any other special thing, I just don't. I work a lot because um, I like it. <laughs> not shocking not shocking at all so maria one question that we always like to ask our guests is what advice would you give your 30 year old self my parents gave me two pieces of advice that i live by or three actually the first is that you always save the white penny for the black day so i would tell my 30 year old self to save more and to make sure that I had planned for my retirement earlier. Just I think why I'm so distressed by so many people withdrawing money from their super funds. The second thing I would do is not feel guilty about what my kids weren't getting. I would accept that I was loving them and I was there for them and I was giving them everything I could and that they would be fine. I think stressing about what they're missing out on is counterproductive to you and to them. I think the third thing I would do, I would say to my, my 30-year-old self, remember to love because it's in those moments where you forget to love the other person that you're with and forgetting to create some sense of unity between the two of you that friction and uh, misunderstanding happen. So those three things are my guiding principles for, uh, that's the advice I'd give my kids and yeah. that's what I'd give myself again, Yeah. Yeah, fantastic. Um, really beautiful advice. Maria, thank you so much for your generosity of your time. We have so enjoyed this conversation. It's been fantastic. Now, if our listeners wanted to find out more about you or more about Advance, where would they go? You can find out about Advance by going to advance.org. Our website has is in the process of being upgraded, So, but and I'd love your feedback. Uh, you can also follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook and Twitter. And if you follow me on uh, LinkedIn, you'll get all the articles I clip and also on Twitter. So on Twitter, I'm at Maria McNamara one and at LinkedIn, I, you can just find me as Maria McNamara. And we're also advances available on, on all three platforms as well. Fantastic. We'll make sure that uh, all of those links are on the show notes page. Well, thank you again. And we, we can't wait to see actually, you know, where Advance goes because we know that you're you're taking it in, you know, making it even more innovative than it has been. So uh, we look forward to that. So thank you again and uh, we'll speak to you soon. Thank you, Maria. I love Maria's principles for innovation, didn't you? 
I absolutely did. And I thought her humility when starting out in a completely new field was really great. Mm. You know, there's no pretending she knew what she was doing because she didn't. And instead, she was completely open about that and and went in hungry to learn. Yeah. And then she realized, of course, how many of her skills were transferable. Yeah, that's right. And then she focused on adding value wherever she could, which is such a great strategy. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's this episode done and dusted. Stay tuned for one of our Future Proof Me mini episodes next week. Stay well, have fun, ciao for now. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.